0: I'm Grace Nosick, and this is Planet Potluck, a podcast sharing the stories of the joy, hope, and community people find in the climate fight. Today, we'll be talking to Kelsey Skaggs, lawyer and executive director of the Climate Defense Project. So, Kelsey, welcome. So excited to have you today. To show all the funny, beautiful connections in the climate movement, I like to ask podcast guests how we met. Can you describe that moment?
1: I think I can remember um you were a few years ahead of me in law school so while we both went to harvard law school we were not we didn't know each other when we were both students yeah um but one of my law school advisors knew that i was working on climate change and she told me about your work at the university of victoria and at that time you were working on a project about resistance to fossil fuel pipelines in british columbia and the legal avenues that some protesters were using. And I was like, this person is awesome. <laughs> so, uh, And I had gone to high school in Victoria. Um, and so I was the co-president of the Harvard Environmental Law Society, which meant that I could host events on campus. So I organized an event. We brought you out to campus. And I think we finally met in person when you gave that great presentation about climate change organizing and climate change law on campus. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then it turned out later that we had mutual friends, because you had met people that I had gone to high school with out in Victoria.
0: Yeah, through all things, like an MTV show. Like, that was, like, the mutual connection. (laughs) And then I loved it, because it was, like, my first return to Harvard to come speak, and I I did kind of have this very serious research, but then I also kind of, like, talked about young adult romance novels and climate change. and so it was it was kind of a really fun moment. And then we bonded over kind of late night vegan food. Yeah. You've done so many cool things. But one of my favorite stories about you is that while you were in your second year at Harvard Law School, you collaborated with other students to sue Harvard, filing the first ever lawsuit to compel fossil fuel divestment. I want to get into the details of the lawsuit in a moment. But can you take us back to the day of filing the lawsuit and tell us how it felt to be a student taking on one of the most powerful institutions.
1: The background feeling was deep frustration. So when we finally uh, filed the lawsuit, it felt empowering, like I was doing what was called for. Um, But in the lead up to that, I was very involved in the divestment movement, um, the worldwide movement to get schools and other institutions to take their money out of fossil fuel companies. And at Harvard, the administration was firmly against divesting or even talking about that openly. They had an endowment, as you know, of about $40 billion, and they weren't even transparent about how much of that was invested in fossil fuels. Mm. Um, And this is how bad it was. There was a fossil fuel industry website that was basically propaganda against divestment. And right at the top of the page... They featured a quote from the then president of Harvard University. <laughs> um, it, was, it was really egregious, but there was a strong movement of students, faculty, alumni, and staff all pushing for divestment. And we really tried everything, um, you know, letters, petitions, rallies, referendums, acts of civil disobedience. Um, but the administration just did not want to engage with us. Uh so one one time we had we had a sit in and our only request was for a public meeting to talk about the university's investment. But rather than have a meeting, they arrested a student. Wow. So we tried all these things unsuccessfully and that's when we decided to try to sue them. Um and the lawsuit, as you said, was totally student run. Um we had law students, a few undergraduates, and a graduate student from the physics department, um, and it was really part of the rest of the campaign. It was part of the uh, the rest of the work, including sit-ins and all of that. So it was another tool. Um, yeah. And when we finally did get to go to court, it was the culmination of a lot of legal work. Uh, I feel like it was a integral part of my education that second year of law school was actually trying to do it and it showed me how few practical tools you really learn at least in the first part of law school Um, and and how difficult it was honestly I felt like I could have done a whole other project on access to justice having gone through that experience Mm. Um, but when we actually did it it felt uh, I felt very calm And I knew that we were doing the right thing and pressuring not just Harvard, but also being part of the larger effort to force the legal system to reckon with climate change and to do that in a just way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's I just I love the story, though, right, because I was a a second-year law student at Harvard as well at some point, and I was not, you know, suing <laughs> these giant institutions. And um, I just I love the idea that you were just learning this trade and already kind of using it to shape the future you wanted to see.
1: Yeah, well, the thing about climate change is we can't afford to wait, mm. right? So we can't wait until we're the perfect lawyers and aren't ever going to make any mistakes, um, And I think that because our systems, including our legal system, are not currently set up to deal with climate change, we have to think outside the box and do things that people are sometimes confused by or don't understand if we're going to get anywhere.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, I love that point. And I I really feel like I have learned that from you kind of just just starting as soon as you can and not waiting to be perfect and and just dreaming huge. Um, So you were one of seven students in the Harvard Climate Justice Coalition who sued Harvard to divest. And the coalition website has the following statement. We brought the suit ourselves without lawyers because universities should be accountable to their students. We also believed and still believe that we have a responsibility to act. Unless and until institutions like Harvard cut ties with the fossil fuel industry, our leaders will remain committed to a system of energy production that guarantees economic injustice and climate catastrophe. Our lawsuit asks Harvard to live up to its centuries-old promise to promote the advancement of youth. Can you tell us a little bit more about the lawsuit itself?
1: Yeah, so that language about the advancement of youth is from the university's founding document, its charter, um, which is quite old because Harvard's been around for a long time. And that was one of the sources that we pointed to in the litigation um, to show what Harvard was supposed to be doing, i.e. promoting the education advancement of youth uh, and how that differs from what they were actually doing, which is investing in the business practices that cause climate change. Um, so we had two different claims in the lawsuit and they're quite distinct the first is that the university was violating its fiduciary duties to the students the students are supposed to benefit from the way that the endowment is run and clearly funding climate change is against students interests for many reasons uh, including that the Harvard campus will soon be flooded as a result of climate change and worsening storms. Mm. Um, and the, so we brought that as students, um, the beneficiaries of the Harvard institution and the endowment. And then our second count was completely different. It was a, a new tort, which is when one actor has caused harm to another, um, we called it intentional investment in abnormally dangerous activity, <laughs> saying that Harvard had, um, had done this when they invested in fossil fuel companies while knowing full well what those companies were doing with their money. Um, and we brought this claim not on our own behalf, but on behalf of future generations. And we felt like that was really important because the intergenerational justice aspect of climate change is so important. um, And it's not something that our legal system has really uh, reckoned with yet, um, although there are some great efforts to force that reckoning. Um, And for us, we had learned about a case in the Philippines um, where that argument on behalf of future generations had worked in another context um, and thought that it was a really powerful framing and that future generations should be represented in uh, legal battles over climate change.
0: Mm. Yeah. And what has the response to the lawsuit been like? Well,
1: eventually, Harvard announced that they were pausing their investments in fossil fuels. Um, I definitely don't think that they've improved much in terms of transparency. So it's difficult to say how long that's lasted and what's really going on. Um, But I do think that that announcement was a response, not specifically to the lawsuit, but to um, the divestment movement uh, on campus and across the world, really. And so I like to think the lawsuit was a part of that. Um, And really, to me, that was one of the best things about the litigation was that it was very much part of The whole divestment campaign. And it taught me that legal work, if you do it right, can be integrated into the larger work of activism. Mm,
0: That is really interesting. After graduating from Harvard Law School, you co founded the Climate Defense Project with two other students from the suit against Harvard Alice Cherry and Ted Hamilton. Can you tell us about the Climate Defense Project?
1: Yes. Climate Defense Project is a legal nonprofit, and we provide legal support to the climate movement, to people and communities who are defending themselves against climate change. And we started because during this time as law students, um, we had many climate activists off campus who we were working with who were doing organizing, doing civil disobedience, and getting arrested. And people started to ask, Alice and Ted and I, you know, you guys do climate work, and you're almost lawyers, can you help us? (laughs) Um, And at that point, as law students, we couldn't really. Uh, But we realized that there was a major need for people to serve as lawyers for frontline activists. Um, and there wasn't anyone working on climate law specifically Mm. in a movement-focused way, uh, which makes sense since it's not really a developed field of law
0: yet. Mm. Awesome. And I've I've heard you say that one in six Americans would be willing to engage in civil disobedience, and that's part of kind of the gap you're hoping to address with the Climate Defense Project.
1: Yes, exactly. There is a study from Yale University that found Mm. that one in six Americans, say that they would personally engage in civil disobedience for better climate policy, which is like 40 or 50 million people. Like, that is a lot. Yeah, Um, it's a huge number. (laughs) Right. So if all of those people were empowered to act on that, um, that would really change things. And so part of Climate Defense Project's mission is to empower those people by providing legal resources um, because it can be very scary and intimidating to intentionally engage with the criminal legal system yeah um, but we aim to make that less intimidating and even to provide ways that people can use the criminal legal system proactively to amplify the effectiveness of their actions
0: mm. and What was it like? I know you can't wait to be perfect, but what was it like being these kind of young graduates just founding an organization?
1: Well, we're only a couple years into it, so it still feels uh, very new. Um, It's definitely daunting. It's definitely scary. Not as scary as climate change. Um, (laughs) But it is uh, not what I expected I would be doing right out of law school for sure. Um, But it was just so clearly important and not happening. But as we were looking around for jobs post-graduation, all three of us really felt that it was the responsible thing to do. You know, if you care about something and you think it's important and nobody's doing it, um, then you do try to find a way. Um, and we all really feel the impact of climate change on our own homes and families. Um, I'm from Alaska, which is incredibly impacted by climate change. Um, I mean, everywhere is at this point. Everybody has something they love that is impacted by climate change. Um, and for me, it's my home, um, which, is, which is a place where climate change has hit early and hard. Um, so all of us really have that in the back of our minds, but all of us are also very inspired by the organizing and resistance, and especially civil disobedience that people are doing all over the world, because we believe that that really can affect change. Um, And so we just are trying to live our values, I suppose. Um, But speaking to your theme of finding community through the climate movement, the three of us met through our activism, and we became a strong team through working on the lawsuit and by sitting together, blockading buildings as part of uh, sit-ins on campus. Um, And it brought us together and I I couldn't imagine having made that decision to start an organization Without them, to really do work as a team.
0: Yeah, no, and I've seen you guys over many years now kind of take on these incredible challenges, and I've seen how much it, it matters that you're doing that together. Um, I didn't realize you had met through activism, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So one of the key things that you are advancing with the Climate Defense Project is something called the Climate Necessity Defense. Can you tell us about that defense?
1: Yeah. The Necessity Defense or the Lesser of Two Evils defense or justification defense allows somebody who broke a law to say, yes, I did break that law, but it was justified, and here's why. So the easiest way to understand it is imagine that you are walking down the street and a house is on fire and you hear a child crying inside. You can break down the door to rescue the baby, which is technically trespassing and probably also property damage, Mm -hmm. and you probably won't get convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. Even though you could have done something legal like wait outside and try to call the fire department and hope that they got there in time, probably no jury is going to convict you. So it's an old part of criminal law. Um, It's been used by activists in a variety of social movements, um, including in the 1980s. People including Abby Hoffman and Amy Carter, President Carter's daughter, successfully used it after they were arrested for protesting CIA activities in Central America. It's also been used in cases stemming from anti-nuclear and air pollution protests. Um, And in terms of what you have to prove, there are a few elements. So you don't just say, it was justified because I felt like it was important. Um, There's some actual law here. And it varies a bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but generally you have to show that, first of all, the activist slash defendant was acting to prevent a serious danger. Second, that they reasonably expected that their action would be an effective way to address or mitigate that danger. And finally, that they didn't have a reasonable lawful alternative. There was nothing they could do within the law that would be as effective.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I've been fascinated by the this defense and kind of the way it frames climate change because it really mm-hmm. shows the urgency and that it it kind of shows what people are doing in a new light. Protesters, I think, are not always given the best rap in the US. Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of showing, yeah, if you think about it more like the burning building and the baby and how critical taking action on climate is, and that that's what these people are trying to do, it's really interesting. And I have this great yeah. quote. So there was a case in Washington against the so-called Delta Five. And these were protesters who had protested against an oil train. And in that case, the climate necessity defense was presented to the jury, although the jury was not ultimately able to rely on it to make their decision. But after the trial, one of the jurors was quoted in The Stranger as saying, it's not going to be available forever, this whole fossil fuel thing. China's not going to want coal forever. They want to get off it as soon as they can. And people know that. But there's this quick, let's make money here. We'll push it through Washington. And I know this because I've been listening to this stuff all week long, so thank you for that. And Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated by that quote, and it kind of goes on to describe how other jurors are saying that they might want to do climate activism. And what does that kind of tell you about the power of the necessity defense?
1: It shows me that it's not just a legal argument. Um, I mean, legally, it is powerful because it can result in acquittal, meaning that the jury can say, "Okay, you're not guilty by reason of necessity, um, even though you did this thing. But aside from that, it's a very good way to explain climate change as the political problem that it is. And I think it also allows defendants activists to be uh, really open and authentic and form a connection with jurors because a critical part of the defense is that the activist says, yes, I did this thing, I'm not trying to hide what I did. In fact, it was the right thing, the only thing to do, and let me tell you why. So yeah, fundamentally, climate change and the government and industry actions that cause it are moral issues. So even though the necessity defense is part of criminal law, it's a legal argument, it's also a moral argument. Mm. And it takes the issue to the people represented by the jury and asks them to make assessments about individual responsibility, about uh, governmental obligation, about the kind of society that we want to have. And with climate change, which is already devastating communities, this is exactly the type of issue that should be debated and aired in public forums like this. And I think the real the real strength of the climate necessity defense is that it can change the whole legal proceeding from the trial of an individual for, for example, trespassing to a trial about climate policy and what people have responsibility to do when government fails and all of these bigger, really important questions that climate change brings up.
0: Yeah. And we've kind of chatted in the past and other people have kind of chatted in the past how few places there are really left for citizens to do this, that the climate policy debate, especially in the U.S., has really been squeezed by kind of there's been this very organized climate change counter movement for the last three decades who have undermined climate science. Um, There's so much money in that debate. And so where do citizens get to kind of come in and tell that story of why they're doing what they're doing?
1: That's exactly right. The courts are not perfect, but they're one place, one forum where we can talk about climate change. And I think that because at least at the federal level, the other branches of government are really not responsive to what people have to say about that. That makes this kind of climate legal activism even more important. Yeah. And one one. Part of what you said, one way that that fits with the necessity defense, you mentioned all the money and politics and the associated problems, Um, that actually is relevant to proving the necessity defense because the activist has to show that they had no reasonable lawful alternative, right? And the the reason that there is, is not a lawful alternative to climate civil disobedience at this point, is precisely because the fossil fuel industry has so much power over policymaking, Mm. especially in the United States. So we would bring in expert testimony, research from political scientists uh, in court to show that the government is responsive to the fossil fuel industry, not to people. Um, And we argue that the legal means of affecting realistic climate policy are not working, but also it wouldn't be reasonable to expect them to work, Mm. given that industry interests have so much control. Mm.
0: Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Um, So the Climate Defense Project's website has this great list of updates on climate necessity defense, and there have been a ton of updates in recent years. Can you speak to just some of the most important in your mind?
1: Yeah, I can talk about a couple of the recent cases. This year we worked on a case uh, out in Boston, actually, in West Roxbury. And that case centered on community resistance to a pipeline that is deeply, deeply unpopular. All of the elected officials who represent the neighborhood at every level except for the governor of Massachusetts opposed the pipeline. Mm. The Boston City Council unanimously voted against it. And residents tried everything they could to stop it, including litigation. Um, and when none of that worked, including civil disobedience. So over a year-long period, over 1,000 people protested and wow. almost 200 were arrested. Wow. Um, yes, yeah, so they were arrested for acts of civil disobedience that forced the company to stop working on construction. Um, they did this by going into the worksite. Um, some by obstructing the entrance to the work site and some by laying their bodies in the trench where the pipe was actually being laid. Mm -hmm. And 13 people were set to go to trial this spring on charges of trespass and disturbing the peace. And we were all prepared to present the necessity defense. We had our expert witnesses. Everybody was lined up. And then one week before the trial date, the prosecutor's office decided to downgrade the charges from criminal to civil infractions, Mm. meaning that the defendants no longer had a right to a jury trial. Mm. So it's like defending against a parking ticket or something. You know, you just go in for a hearing. Um, And so our clients still had this little hearing, and the judge gave them two minutes each to speak about why they did this act of climate civil disobedience. And ultimately, she found them not responsible, which is the civil law equivalent of not guilty, by reason of necessity. So accepting that argument, even though they didn't have the full trial to present it. And that was the first time that that happened wow. uh, in a U.S. climate case. So it was a roller coaster ride of a, <laughs> of a trial and then a not trial, um, <laughs> but it was still a very good outcome.
0: Yeah, that got international coverage. I mean, I it was so funny. Yeah. I had people telling me about it here in Canada. They were like, "Grace, did you hear about this?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's actually my friend." <laughs>
1: that's great. That's so cool to hear.
0: Um, that's awesome. So In September 2018, the Climate Defense Project released its Principles of Climate Civil Resistance, a document summarizing the legal basis for nonviolent resistance to the fossil fuel system. And as per your website, the principles list numerous legal violations committed by state and federal governments in the permitting and promotion of fossil fuel use, including violations of constitutional and human rights. Can you tell us more about these principles?
1: The Principles of climate civil resistance are meant as a resource for climate activists and others to use in conceptualizing and talking about and defending their own rights.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and we talk about the fundamental rights that allow individuals and communities to nonviolently resist injustice and uh, to assert the, the legality of such resistance in light of the existential threat of climate change. And so it's, we put it out as a guide to legal ideas that may be useful to climate activists. And it is some legal context that people might want to consider um, as they are doing or thinking about acts of climate civil disobedience. Um, And at the heart of this document and a lot of the work that we do is the question of who's really breaking which law, Um, because climate activists are prosecuted when they trespass or whatever else they do when trying to stop climate change and challenge the dominance of fossil fuels. But the fossil fuel industry, which is really causing... Climate change and all the harms associated with it, uh, that's legal. Those people are mm. arguably the real criminals, but they are not only permitted to continue their disruptive business operations, but they receive government subsidies to do so.
0: Mm.
1: And so we think that people are completely justified in resisting that, and that the law needs to catch up mm. to what's really going on here. Mm. And that's that's one of the principles behind nonviolent civil disobedience, right, is that sometimes it's right to break a law that supports an unjust system.
0: Yeah. And you have spent a lot of time with activists over the past couple of years, and I know it can be very personal. and. It must be terrifying and scary and hopeful and this whole roller coaster when you're working with them. Can you speak a little bit about the act, uh, the activists that you've worked with and, and why they do what they do?
1: First of all, our clients are the coolest people ever. <laughs> and working with them and getting to represent them is definitely the best part of my job. And it really is, all of those emotions you mentioned are there. The, the nerve-wracking, definitely. Um, the, yeah, being worried about, people you care about and have some responsibility for uh, going to jail or not. Um, that's pretty real. But far in a way, the thing that they bring me most is hope because they're out there in the face of what can sometimes feel like overwhelming odds, acting on their principles and doing what they know is right and really living uh, a responsibility to do something that they think will be effective and so I can't speak for you know all of them in terms of how they feel about it but what I see is that they're regular people of deep conviction uh, that have somehow found the courage to act on what a lot of us know um, if we really stop and think about it and it is it's very powerful.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, that that is so powerful. And my, my next question, which you may have already answered, but if you want to expand on it at all, was going to be uh, what gives you hope for the climate movement?
1: I think what gives me the most hope is seeing what climate activists are doing. Uh, our clients and people all over the U.S., all over the world have such creative and brave responses to climate change and the systems that promote it uh, that never fails to give me hope Mm
0: -hmm. thank you so much kelsey i really i cannot thank you enough for your time i know how busy you are and i'm i'm so grateful that you could speak with me today
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure, really. I'm happy
0: to do it. Today's call to action is to understand the shrinking options available for people to have a say in the climate policy debate and why folks might feel compelled to participate in civil disobedience. Look up the climate change counter movement and hashtag Exxon New to understand how members of the fossil fuel industry and their allies have been undermining climate science for decades. As always, I'll post some links to get you started. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Planet Potluck. And remember, we're all in this together. You're listening to Planet Potluck, hosted by me, Grace Nosick. There's lots more to learn at planetpotluck.com.